Hi there, welcome to Night School, number 214 on a Thursday night at 1116. And it's a full moon outside with Mars very close to that full moon. Mars has been featured prominently in the sky in the last week or so. But tonight it is joined by a full moon. A full moon, one word. And this isn't the first episode 214 I've done today. There was actually one that got deleted on purpose. It's very rare that I am so disgruntled after I do an episode that I feel the need to delete it. But in this case, I did. For a couple reasons. One, there was a high-pitched whine behind the audio. Windows did one of those mandatory updates on me this morning. One of those, you know, we're going to restart your computer in an hour or you can do it now. You know, it's it's just like life. Sometimes life just forces an update on you. Just forces a restart. But yeah, I had to go through that. And then ever since then, trying to record audio, there's this, just this very high-pitched noise. It's subtle, but enough that it bothered me. Some sort of internal feedback. I think I determined that it was the result of multiple USB devices being plugged in. Oh, is this one of those multiple USB device things? Good thing I'm a techie. Good thing I'm a techie. I'm a foodie and a techie. No, in fact, I'm, I'm even luckier than that. I'm even luckier than that. I got one son who's a techie and another son who's a foodie. And they do everything for me. I'm the luckiest mom, dad in the world. I'm the luckiest mom dad in the world because I got one son's a techie, one son's a foodie. One cooks me the best food. The other one uh, gets me all set up with all the newest best stuff. I don't know how this shit works. Oh, excuse me. Excuse my language. I don't know how this stuff works. I think I know what a computer is. I just use it while I'm eating my finger licking good food. No, I don't know. I'm not much of a techie. I know my way around, but uh, I think I determined that it was multiple USB devices creating some kind of feedback loop. I don't know that I solved the problem. Sometimes you can diagnose a problem, but you can't necessarily solve it. Ain't that, ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? But, you know, I don't want to have high-pitched, audio, high-pitched, like almost like a sine wave, it sounded like. Very quiet, but enough that you could hear it enough, and I couldn't equalize it out after the fact. And I don't want that. And it might show up again, and if it does, know that I'm aware of it and I'm working on it. And don't let it ruin the show for you. Because as much as I don't want this show to be concerned with audiophilia, I'm not an audiophile. And in fact, in my opinion, there's not much difference between an audiophile and a pedophile. And the words wouldn't sound so similar if they weren't practically the same thing. Audiophiles are practically a pedophile. Practically pedophiles. But, uh, you know, I don't want this show to be an audiophile show. I don't want it to be worried about having all of the, the perfect professional podcast online radio technology. But I don't want weird high-pitched noises, digital high-pitched noises in the background. 
Dogs barking, that's fine. Leaf blowers outside, fine. When I say peas, I don't mind it if it kind of does a you know, sound into the microphone. I don't mind that. What I don't want is weird high-pitched sounds that only start happening after Windows does an update. But enough about that. This is the second 214 I've done today. It felt a little bit cursed. You know, I was listening back to it. I didn't like what I was saying, first of all. And this episode is going to be really bad if I keep talking about the episode I already deleted the entire time. But I do want to say, it's, it's very rare that I delete an episode, but I listened back to it. I didn't like what I was saying. It was stuff I've already said. It was and it, it, The stuff that was new, there was some good stuff in it, but if I need to say that stuff again, I'll get back to it. It just it felt a little bit cursed, and that is where my superstition kicks in. You know, in the same way I talked about, you know, when I was playing Final Fantasy IX, and it had this beautiful mod, this beautiful graphics mod, and then the the very night that I started playing it, there was some sort of update to that game, and it made the it broke the graphics mod, and it kind of felt like a sign that I wasn't meant to enjoy the graphics mod. That's kind of how I felt when I heard the high pitched noise that I couldn't get rid of. I kind of felt like maybe that other that first episode two fourteen didn't need to exist. And that it should eventually be taken, its place should be taken, it should be eclipsed. Speaking of moons, episode 214 from this morning should be eclipsed. So this is actually episode 214 2.0. See, I'm a techie, I talk this way. As a techie, I talk this way. I'm all about 2.0, 2.5. You know you're a techie when it's not just 1.0, 2.0, when you get into the 2.4s, 2.5s. Maybe you're going to be looking for that. Maybe this episode's going to be deleted. Maybe this episode 214 2.0 is going to be deleted. And next you're going to have to look for episode 214 2.6. No. Hopefully not. Hopefully this is it. This is it, guys. This is episode 214. And now it's over. No. Um... I'll just talk about a couple of random things that were on my mind, uh, and uh, these might be out there ideas to some people, but I feel like there's something to them, and they're worth verbalizing, they're worth putting in other people's heads, and one of those involves autocorrect. Since this is a tech talk show, since I'm all into this tech talk, I'm going to talk about a little something people know about, autocorrect, something everybody experiences now, something everybody's familiar with. And autocorrect is interesting because I don't know that anything in history ever wrote for you. Yeah, when someone writes a book, they have an editor. If somebody wrote, if somebody was a journalist and they wrote articles for a newspaper, an editor would correct things, mistakes. A copy editor would fix grammatical mistakes, misspellings. Uh, some other kind of editor might change something. You know, they might rewrite something that would happen with books. Somebody who's editing a book for somebody might rephrase something. So you always had that, but it was organic. It was another human being. And then, of course, you know, Microsoft Word, these word processors would point out misspellings. They would underline things. But the idea of something actually constructing 
words and phrases and changing your words into something else in almost real time, pretty much real time, because as you type things, you, you see them change before your eyes. And you can disable that, but you probably don't want to because, you know, this way you know when you make a mistake. But it's frustrating because then you often, it often takes something that it doesn't know and turns it into another word that it does know, or it censors you. You know, every time I type the word dick, it changes it to duck. That happened to me today. I was I don't even know what I wrote, but it involved the word dick, and it changed it to duck. And uh, but it, that's just one of those things. But I don't want this this point to be mistaken as a oh stupid autocorrect oh man autocorrect dude. You know I don't want this to that to be the point that I'm making. The point I'm making is when something does autocorrect which is an entirely new idea. Like I said, even though Microsoft Word made suggestions, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe something like this has existed before, but I don't know of any time in history when like nobody was ever writing a letter, and unless you were a, you know, a really high-level mage, the pen didn't just start writing on its own. And of course, you know, something that developed after autocorrect is this version that predicts this predictive text where it thinks it knows what you're going to say. I, th- I believe that's both based on what's already programmed into it. This predictive text generator, you know, it, it understands English. It's been programmed to understand common phrases, so it might fill things in based on that. But I believe it also learns, in some cases, what you typically say. And in that way, you're not much different from a chatbot. So the best thing you can do is break that. You know, like I've talked about before, breaking the algorithms. And that's not just tech talk, because algorithms are, while we understand that term to, as it applies to computers, as it applies to the internet, it's mirroring something that happens organically in the way that we think, in, in the world that we experience, in the material world, because computers were created in not just man's image, but the world's image, as man understands it. But you have to try to break that. In the same way that you're going to break a routine in your life, you know, you have to try to break these algorithms when you experience them. And you don't want your phone to be able to predict what you say. And you don't want it to choose what you say, even if it's what you intended to say. And that's the point that I'm getting at here is when your phone autocorrects for you, I recommend taking the time to go back and retype what you said. And I know that this sounds crazy because it's so time-consuming. I know that to just about everybody out there, they're going to say, no way. I don't, got, I don't got enough time to go back and retype the thing. Autocorrect's a, a, a freaking blessing. Autocorrect will make your shoes look like uh, mirrors. I don't know why Goodfellas quotes need to get worked into this. Um, I knew autocorrect when it was shining shoes. But, uh, you know, going back, see when you see that autocorrect changes something that you said because you mistyped it, even if it got it right, especially if it got it right, 
I recommend going back, and even if you just go back to the individual letter you got wrong, I recommend hitting delete and typing in the correct letter yourself. And the best way I think I could explain that is, and maybe this is a little too supernatural to me. To me, this is as down-to-earth as you get. But somebody might think this is a little, uh, little out there. But in my opinion, when you're the one actually typing it, when you're the one who actually chose the letters, it is putting it in your voice. And when something autocorrects, and you just go with the autocorrected version, even though it's the same exact letters that you intended to type, it's like editing a robot voice into that paragraph. And maybe you don't send paragraphs. Maybe you're not like me. You don't send paragraphs to people. But... You know, it's like inserting an edited, like Stephen Hawking voice into a paragraph that is written in your voice. And by going back and deliberately retyping the word or fixing the letters you got wrong individually, you're putting that word, you're keeping that word in your voice. Because it was in your voice originally, but you, got, you made a mistake, and then this robot voice chimed in. And it, it's almost like a, it, you might as well be a beep. It might as well be a, a sensor beep, something that you would, like if you were saying the word uh, dick. Or not even that. It might even be like if you watched old uh, you know, TV movies. They might still do this. I'm sure they do, where they edit out curse words with similar sounding words. You know, I still have it somewhere, but I, I had a version of Young Guns that was taped from TV, you know, the... Uh, Billy the Kid movie with Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen and different people. And I, I had a version of that that was taped from TV where there's two different lines where he says, kiss my ass. And in one of them, they edited, edited it to be kiss my eye. Tell the governor he can kiss my eye. Another one, they edited it to be kiss my hand. Which are good edits. Kiss my hand makes a little more sense. Kiss my eye is a little strange. The idea of kissing somebody's eye. I wouldn't want my eye kissed, even by somebody I was very comfortable with. Kiss my hand, I don't know, maybe. Maybe I'll let somebody kiss my hand. But uh, it was a good edit, you know, and that kind of made sense. But to me, like when you let autocorrect change something you and you don't go back and retype it, it's almost like changing ass to hand or eye. But in a Stephen Hawking voice, in that generic robot voice, and I know this sounds crazy, and it's not something I do every time, but there are certain people I do it with. And it's not based on who I'm necessarily closest to. Like I was thinking today, there's a person that I do this with where I'll, I'll retype my words so it's in my mind, in my voice. It's from my hand because my hand is my voice. Kiss my, kiss my voice. And uh, there's somebody, there's a couple people that I do this with, but there's other people who I, and it's it's not based on who's closest to me necessarily. I don't know what it is. It's, it's just an intuitive thing, and maybe that makes it sound even crazier. And it's not something I do every single time, of course. But it's a basic guideline I've come up with. And I feel there's something to it. Maybe it's magical thinking. 
as people say. But I personally believe there's something to not letting the robot type for you. To me, letting the robot change your words for you and keeping the robot's voice, (laughs) keeping the robot's hand in your business like that, I don't know, I feel like that does something weird. And maybe other people feel the same because other people don't like autocorrect, even though it's useful in many ways, even though it shows you where you may have erred. There's a lot of resentment toward it. And maybe this is a way to get over a little bit of that resentment. And no, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to go back. You don't always have the time to type everything and re go back when it autocorrects and retype the thing that's always that's already been corrected. You definitely wouldn't want to do that at work or something where you have a quota. You know, unless you're just trying to waste time. But the way I'm talking about it is definitely not a way to waste time because you're doing it on your time, in your own life. But it's a way of putting things in your own voice. And I guess it's it kind of relates to the idea that doesn't have anything to do with technology. Although, you know, it does connect, of course, because we communicate ideas most often on using technological devices these days. But it's there was an episode a little while back where I talked about why teachers would make you rewrite things in your own words and the reason wasn't just to make you do extra work and put in extra effort to earn the grade baby earn the grade it wasn't just for that you better earn that grade it wasn't just for that although that's part of it but a big part of it was making sure you understand the idea Because if you rephrase something in your own words, you are communicating to the teacher that you understand the idea behind the words and you aren't just memorizing phrases that other people came up with. And I'm not just talking about plagiarism here. I'm also talking about basically just reiterating what someone else says. And this is important now. You know, your teachers understood it. Maybe they didn't even know why they were asking you. Maybe teachers, maybe your teachers, some of your teachers didn't even know why they were asking you to put things in your own words. But I imagine most of them did. But it's to make sure that you understand the idea behind it. Because if you can express the same thing using different words, different examples, that's probably the clearest way to communicate that you understand the idea itself. And so putting things in your own words, being able to do it, you don't have to do it all the time. It's kind of like with autocorrect. You don't have to go back and retype the thing that autocorrect already corrected for you every time. But thinking of it as a general guideline is a way of keeping things in your own voice and keeping your brain untwisted and intact in some way. And this is especially true online where people share memes and screen caps and copy and paste things and express most of their viewpoints through the words of other people. Or even if they do express their own views, they're so filled with the same buzzwords, they might as well be plagiarism. So I do feel there's something to putting things in your own voice whenever and whenever you can, time permitting.
a general guideline, not something you're going to do 80% of the time or even 50% maybe. But if you make an effort to do it at all, I feel that you add some value to your own character, to your own, you know, capabilities of expression, I guess would be a way to put it. Your own ability to express yourself might be the best way. But uh, just something I've thought about. I've been thinking about it lately, and uh, I don't think I've talked about Somehow, I don't think I've talked about it on here. And yeah, somebody's going to hear that and be like, oh my God, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. What's not crazy talk? Talking at all is crazy. But, uh, you know, that's, that's just one of the things I've been thinking about. Just one of the things. Another thing I've been thinking about is this AIDS video I saw in school. I, was, I must have been in fifth grade, and they were teaching us sex ed. It was a week. It's funny how they didn't spread it out. You know, in school, they never spread sex out through the entire year. Like, oh, on a random day. Today, we're going to talk about sex. My joke, my idea, I don't know that it was a joke. I had an idea for a, a bumper sticker years ago that just said, thought about sex today? That's it. I wanted to make that a bumper sticker. And to me, that's dark. You know, as somebody who's not repressed, but definitely restrained in that regard, I, I consider that kind of a dark joke. Thought about sex today? But uh, in school, you know, of course, everybody's always everybody's always thinking about it. I'm always thinking about it even now, you know. But in school, you know, it was just they spread it out or sorry, they 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 concentrated it. They didn't spread it out, which is funny to me. The idea that it's like this week we're just going to go full on, full in, no pun intended, to the whole sex ed thing. Not something that's just randomly spread out throughout the year. But anyway, in fifth grade, I guess it was, maybe fifth or sixth grade, we had this pretty intense week. I think that was the first year that we had an actual intensive crash course in human sexuality. And it involved watching movies. I don't know if you'd even call them documentaries because it's all fiction anyway. Human sexuality is mostly fiction. You know that, right? But... um no, yeah, it was it was of course these I guess documentaries, edu- educational videos, uh, and one of them was about AIDS, and the quality of it looked like it was made in the 1970s, but it was probably produced in the early 90s, maybe late 80s at the latest, and it stood out to me for a couple reasons. One, it actually made me throw up, and I'm not that's not hyperbole it actually made me go to the bathroom and throw up and uh, the second reason it's i mean that's the full reason it's memorable but the second reason is just how strange it was and what i remembered about it i was telling a friend about this and i hadn't seen this video since that time Uh, there, there would have been no way i could have found this video and But I was telling a friend about it, and I was saying how what I remember is there were these people in really cheap costumes. They were almost like, you know, Muppet, 
not quite, I mean, definitely nothing like Jim Henson costumes or anything like that, but just a very cheap, almost like a cheap parody of those sorts of costumes that you would see on a live-action kids' TV show with costumed creatures and that sort of thing, but much more strange because they were meant to depict cells and and just, you know, microorganisms. But they were people, they were adults wearing these these colorful suits, and there were some that were posing as blood cells, white blood cells, and others that were posing as a, a virus. And, you know, the details of the costumes were kind of lost to me. I just kind of remember globs of color. And they were playing baseball, and they were using baseball... I guess, to explain how these viruses get... I mean, it was all about AIDS. It wasn't just viruses in general. It was specifically an AIDS educational video. And so they were using these weird glob color creatures in these cheap costumes, playing baseball to explain how you get AIDS. And in my memory, they were playing in the yard of an old house or a big house, And what I remember is watching this and feeling anxious and just feeling, you know, very light, you know, getting lightheaded and just feeling nauseous and going to the bathroom, just rushing to the bathroom in the middle of this and puking everything out and feeling just immense relief. And I was saying to my friend how it's the only time in my life where puking has just made me feel immediately good. Because when I drank, you know, you'd puke and you feel relief. You'll feel better after that. I mean, you might, I mean, I've had experiences where you puke and then you keep drinking because you feel so much better. You got the nasty stuff out of you, but you're still drunk. You still don't feel good. You still feel gross. Or other times you throw up because you're actually ill. You know, you're sick. But this was one of the only times, maybe the only time where I didn't have a bug And I wasn't drunk, and I just puked because something made me sick. Something I was watching made me sick. No movies have done that to me. Nothing I've experienced. I've never seen something in real life. I've never been walking down the street. I've never been in an alleyway where I see something that is so gross that it actually makes me puke. But this AIDS video did. And you'd think that just saying that without that description of what it was... This AIDS video would have been some scientific examination of a real body or something. But no, it was these creatures and it was people wearing costumes. These cheap, some sort of cheap representation of microorganisms. And, And so the other day I tried to find this video and, you know, with things being the way they are, I was able to find it very quickly. And there was more to it than I remembered but I was impressed that what I remembered was very close, almost exactly what I envisioned from my memory. And it was people in these gross costumes, these cheap, gross costumes playing baseball. But I, what I didn't remember is that it started with actual little kids playing baseball. And then I guess their coach or one of their dads takes them out for pizza. And on the way to the pizzeria, they see a newspaper stand, and a headline that says San Mateo has been hit with it heavily by AIDS or something. AIDS spreading in San Mateo. And the kids are like, what's AIDS? 
And then so they're sitting there at the pizzeria waiting for their pizza. And I guess he's, I don't know if he's their coach or their dad or both. I kind of like to imagine he's just their coach and not one of the parents, not a parent too. Uh, apparently not a parent, just a coach. But he's explaining aids to them. But it, it's they really dance around how you get it. At one point, he does mention that it's sexually transmitted or that you can get it from, you know, intravenous drug use. But he really dances around that. He just kind of like, just kind of talks about how you have to be vigilant. You have to be safe to try not to get it and how it's difficult to get unless you live a risky lifestyle, basically, is how he explains it. But they, yeah, they really dance around how it is actually transmitted it's more about how it gets into your, what it does to your body, I guess. But yeah, as I remembered, it's these weird creatures in costumes, very cheap costumes. Everything about it is very low quality, and they're playing baseball, and it's ghoulish. They they act, because like the AIDS virus, that the one in the AIDS costume, which one of them is, one of them is AIDS, and I didn't fully remember what the AIDS costume looked like but it's kind of a red round head like almost like a tomato but just cheap and then a a red bodysuit of some kind and I mean they're almost like cheap ghost costumes I mean they're just like a step above putting a sheet over your head and saying you're a ghost which is a good costume you know it's it's the ultimate ghost costume but still it's like these costumes are just in terms of cheapness basically a step above that and so it's like this weird tomato looking aids thing but it has like these pincers pinchers whatever you call them like kind of like how an ant has those pincers i think they're called at the front of its mouth like basically a mandibles i don't i'm trying to think of what those are called uh, you know, I think you understand what they are, though. Those things ants have on their mouth. And it has those, which makes it extra ghoulish, of course. And then it, it gets into this part where, you know, my memory, the only thing that I was wrong about, the only thing my memory was wrong about, and keep in mind, I saw this probably, God, 26 years ago. And the only thing I was wrong about was that it, in my memory, they were playing baseball in in the yard of this house, but I guess they're playing baseball at a neighborhood park, and then at one point they go to a house, and it's explaining how what AIDS does, I feel like I'm getting sick again just talking about this, it'd be amazing if, if this video made me sick twice in my life, 26 years apart, but at one point the AIDS virus is opening up the gate to the house, to the yard, and it's letting other things in. And it's saying what AIDS does is it breaks your body down, and the AIDS itself doesn't kill you, but it makes you susceptible to other viruses. So it's explaining how it opens up the gate and lets these other viruses in, and it's like doing this welcome sort of thing, like putting its open hand out, you know, kind of like gesturing, like, please, go inside. And I don't know at what point I got sick as a kid. But I remember the baseball field and I remember the house. And I know that the the feelings of uh, nausea were building throughout all of that. And so it must have been probably like near the end of the house segment. Where I just had to rush to the bathroom and puke my guts out. And then it ends with them back in the pizzeria and like their pizza gets brought to their table and, you know, it's just, it's very wholesome. 
But meanwhile, this coach and two kids have been sitting at a table talking about AIDS in, out loud in a pizzeria. You know, if I was in that pizzeria, I would lean over and be like, you mind? I came out to a pizzeria, have a fun time. And you, you're, this freak coach is telling kids all about AIDS using baseball examples. You know, it's, it's weird. But watching it, it was just as weird, if not weirder weirder than I remembered I recommend looking it up look up baseball AIDS education video because I think that's what I used and uh, it was very strange though very strange but I like that I'm glad it was strange I like strange things so I recommend watching this if you like just weird old videos like that this one is unique I've never seen anything else like it But AIDS did something. I don't know what it was about explaining. Because, I mean, it wasn't the first time I've had sickness explained to me. But there was something, probably the severity of AIDS. The way that AIDS was, you know, such a a point of discussion growing up. Because that might be something that people today don't relate to. Well, I don't like the idea of AIDS being downplayed. I don't like HIV being downplayed. While I don't think that people who have it should be treated with cruelty, I also think it deserves a certain stigma, and not because it's associated with a certain type of person, not for that reason, but I don't think it should be treated casually. Although it is treated a little more casually today than it ever has been, because it isn't nearly as lethal, thanks to treatments. And who knew that this would just be me talking about AIDS? I knew this episode, uh, episode 214, 2.0, would end up being uh, an, an info podcast about the AIDS virus. But people who are growing up in the last, say, 20 years, people who have been in elementary school since I have been, probably didn't have it as emphasized as it was for us. So I think that added to it. I think that added to, you know, me puking, is just knowing that this was... At that point in time, one of the most severe things that could happen to you, outside of something violent, I mean, they made AIDS out to be far more more um, terrifying than cancer, and maybe it was, you know, maybe it was, I don't know, I don't know that we need to put these things in competition with each other, so what side are you on? Is cancer more scary, or is AIDS? Pick a side, you know, people will do that. People probably have done that. (laughs) Um, People are doing that right now about things. What's scarier? This or that? What's what's scarier? Autocorrect or AIDS? But, uh, you know, just the way that it was emphasized. And there was another experience, too, where I was in junior high. I must have been in ninth grade. And there was a kid that I'd kind of grown up with like not a friend really but he was a kid in the community community kid he was a little bit younger than I was it was one of those junior high science classes where you have kids of a couple different ages and we were again having a sex ed week this concentrated week of sexual education and this kid Brian was in there and he we were watching an AIDS documentary and I handled this one pretty well I handled this one relatively well I mean you know, the bar had been set pretty high for me. It didn't make me puke. 
So that was uh, me handling it relatively well. I didn't have to go to the bathroom and throw up. But poor Brian, he was sitting at my table, and all of a sudden the teacher just stopped dead in his tracks during this AIDS video, and he goes, are you okay? It was kind of scary, you know. It was like the teacher was so alarmed, and he was looking at this Brian kid, asking him if he was okay, and Brian was hunched over and just white. You know, there's this saying, white as a ghost, and... Very rarely have I seen someone actually become noticeably pale in a given moment. And I everybody looked at this Brian kid, and he was kind of hunched over in his chair, almost nodding off, like falling forward. And he was completely white. And the AIDS video had done a number on him. And I related to it. In that exact moment, I knew. I was just like, oh, I've been there. It was old hat to me. Oh, is this your first one? Is this the first AIDS video that's made you sick? I was a veteran of that. There's a whole other virus. The psychological virus of AIDS was that it made children sick in school. But Brian didn't puke. He was just hunched over and completely white. And the teacher went over and, like, put his arm under Brian and helped him up. I mean, this kid was, he was not even talking. He was in the process of losing consciousness, as we would soon learn, and the teacher, Mr. Schaefer, who was a, he he had like a shaved head and a reggae poster on the wall, but anyway, he helped Brian across the room, and Brian was just almost limp, you know, this, it, it was like he, something severely bad had happened to him, he was, you know, white as a ghost and just almost limp and the teacher had his arm under him and he was having he was practically carrying him to the door he was going to take him to the nurse and right before they get to the door and it's a metal door the kid brian just completely loses consciousness and falls forward and hits his head on the door and so the teacher had to carry him basically i don't remember the specifics of how he did it but he had to carry this kid to the nurse. And it was, so I mean, his reaction was far worse than mine. I mean, I got away with just a, a quick puke. I got away with just a quick puke. Brian lost consciousness in front of the whole class and hit his head on a door. Might have gotten a concussion for all I know. I mean, it was bad. It was a bad scene. So, point being, AIDS videos will do this to you. And I'd like to know what would have happened if Brian had seen the video I saw. Because in my opinion, the video I saw was far worse. And after that happened, another kid who sat at our table leaned over to me and he goes, you know, it's like when we watch these videos, it makes my arms feel weird. And I think that's anxiety. Anxiety makes your arms feel light. It's almost like the blood in your arms gets thinner. I've had that experience with anxiety before. But it was funny that that kid leaned over, you know, after that, after this kid lost consciousness, this other kid at our table, and he just told me, you know, these videos make my arms feel weird. <laughs> it was so specific. <laughs> and I related to it. I totally understand that feeling because that's what had happened to me. Once again, it's all about me being a veteran of this, where when I was, when I got sick because of this AIDS video, what built up to me throwing up was my arms feeling weird. I start my first my arms started to feel weird and then that weird feeling traveled into the center of me it, it traveled into my core and I had to vomit it up and I think I was vomiting up more than just the material vomit itself 
in the same way that I was talking about AIDS being some sort of psychological virus that affected children watching AIDS education videos, I think me throwing up was more than just the puke itself. (laughs) Supernatural puke. First, I talk about how there's more to autocorrect than meets the eye and how you should retype things that have been autocorrected to put it in your own hand, in your own voice. If you think that's out there, wait, just wait till I start talking about how when an AIDS video makes you puke, how you're puking up more than just the material puke itself. It's your soul crying out. People know a lot about that right now. Are you, are you soul crying out? Are you, are you talking about 2020? A little bit. I don't know. People's souls are always crying out, but they're crying out hard right now. And it's tough to watch. Not that I don't have my own anxiety. Not that I don't have my own issues. But there's something both... I mean, you can see both the beast and the soul right now in people. You can see the snarl. You can see the animal snarling, but you can also, you know, see what's going on on a deeper level in people and the way they they express themselves. Um, you know, tonight, a very famous person was diagnosed with coronavirus. Everybody knows who I'm referring to. And that news is that news itself is a virus. That news itself is immediately relevant to every single person in the world, except for maybe some undeveloped tribe somewhere who lives on an island. But to everybody in the what people call the developed world, that news is immediately going to possess you. And it's true for me, too. Big news. That's big news. It's capital B, big news. And I have nothing to say about it. I mean, it just it, it's making its rounds as I speak. There's people who are going to lose sleep tonight over it. People who don't even like the guy. Because it, it that news itself produces a whole other dimension of... Anxiety, even in people, like I said, who have been have been devoted to just hating the man for the last few years. And I want to avoid all of it. I want to avoid all of that myself. I'm I'm trying to avoid any feeling of possession as if I had been possessed by any kind of ghoulish tendency both my own ghoulish tendencies and the ghoulish tendencies of others because you have to worry about both you got to worry about both but um yeah it's it's you know i don't it's a full moon tonight and i appreciate that mars is you know creeping in close too to that moon Apparently it's going to be a full moon, a blue moon, a moony blue on Halloween, which is nice. I appreciate the moon in all of its phases. 
but a full moon. Well, we all know about full moons. And today feels like one. Today does feel like a full moon. I've sort of had that feeling all day. I wouldn't call it an off feeling. I wouldn't compare it to puking something more than your puke out. I wouldn't compare it to feeling light in the arms, as the kids say. Are you feeling a little bit light in the arms like you're watching an AIDS video? I don't have that feeling. But just a little uh, apprehensive about something. And I don't mean for this to be a diary entry. Feeling apprehensive. Let autocorrect write your diary for you. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing when you let predictive text run your life. Text. That's what you're doing when you're letting predictive text run your life. Is the, You're letting a robot write your diary for you. Would you let a robot dictate your diary? Would you let a robot write your autobiography? Well, if it meant the difference between having an autobiography and not having one, I'll let anybody write it. I'll let anybody ghostwrite my autobio. And that gets into my final point, which is the phrase doomed to obscurity. That's a a bad phrase if I've ever heard one. Because I feel that obscurity is a blessing. I feel like obscurity is relief from unnecessary critique. Not to say you still might not, you know, it still might not be an easy road. But it kind of plays into the guy who got coronavirus. The guy that we just found out got coronavirus, where that guy is not obscure. He's right now, in in the present moment, in the last few years, the most famous man in the world. And he has more hate and devotion directed to him at the same time than just about anybody. And I think the hate often outweighs the devotion. And I don't know that it's desirable to live a life where you get a Wikipedia entry or write a best-selling autobiography. I don't know that that's desirable. I mean, I'm someone who, even though I have this desire to express myself and a part of me wishes I had more of an audience, a part of me wishes I had a little more fanfare, I also appreciate that I don't. And I also understand not just that, I understand not just that attention brings with it kind of a counterweight that can make your life worse. And I don't just mean celebrity. I don't just mean the paparazzi, although that's probably the easiest way to understand it. I think part of it is just the psychic energy that is focused on you and just knowing that people have opinions on you. I'm glad that the only people that I really know of who have opinions on me are the relatively few people I know of. But the idea of many people being out there who have opinions about you, and not that those matter, because you know, I know that famous people often talk about, like, oh, you just can't listen to people. You can't listen to random people's opinions about you. You know, it's not even that. It's just simply the thought itself. It's not what people think, but it's the the idea alone that people you don't know are actively thinking about you. 
because as has been firmly established on this show, you know, I do believe in some form of immeasurable energy. And I do believe in, in some level of, you know, psychic transmission. And I don't know that that's the best phrase for it. But I do believe these things have an impact and that things get communicated silently, quietly. Whether you want to think of them as frequencies, it doesn't really make a difference to me. I don't really have a need to describe something I don't fully understand, but that I nonetheless have a sense for. And so the idea of obscurity, you know, we often think of it as undesirable. And what people want more than anything, what creatures want more than anything, is to acknowledge and be acknowledged. And often people acknowledge in order to then be acknowledged in turn. And there's no better way to see this play out than, of course, like buttons on social media. And while I am, I've been critical of that, you know, I'm, I'm much more of a, I think if you really, if you really care about something, you know, you can comment on it, but I do feel like the invention of this like button was a bad move overall, but it wasn't some nefarious plot by the techies to get back to those people, the techies. If you think the techies are evil, you should see what the foodies are up to. But I don't believe that these like buttons were designed, you know, they were designed in response to the basic human need for acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement button. And that's all it means. It means this person wants to acknowledge you. Or you want to acknowledge somebody else. And you want them to know that you're acknowledging them. That's all that is, and that's primitive. Even though people treat it like it's this new thing. As I say time and time again, these things mirror what's already there. We create computers, we create technological developments with what we already want in mind. And those technological developments, of course, influence us in turn. You know, those come back around and they end up influencing us in certain ways. They reinforce certain behaviors in us. But at their core, they're still us and they come from what we want, regardless of what device we're using or what period of history we are in. It's why people buy the clothes they (laughs) they buy the clothes they wear. It's why they buy the clothes they clothe. Uh, it's, it's why they wear the clothes they wear. It's why they get the haircuts they do. It's in some cases why they have the interests they do. They want acknowledgement. And even a small amount of acknowledgement goes a long way. Both in person. Somebody just saying one little thing to you. Somebody that you thought didn't even know you existed said one little thing to you. And it might have made your day. Or changed your entire perspective on a situation that somebody looked you in the eye even. But especially said something to you. Especially if it somehow communicated that they noticed you or noticed something you did. That has a lot of value. And it's what people seek 
wherever they are. Not everybody. Of course, some people want to avoid attention. But at some point, everybody is seeking attention, and most people want it more often than not. Not that they want to be the center of attention, but again, it, the word attention has become kind of pejorative. Oh, you just, you're an attention whore. You're an attention whore. Oh, you're looking for attention, huh? Oh, he just wants attention. People say that like it's horrible to want attention, to want to be noticed. And yeah, of course, it gets really bad. Of course, some people want a lot of attention. But they want to be acknowledged. And I think that's a more decent way of phrasing it, given the way attention is worded these days, the way that people use that word, attention. Just looking at it as simple acknowledgement. And even just a small amount of it does go a very long way. And the, But people also, too much of it, and people, it loses some of its value, I guess you could say. Too much attention and small doses of it do lose their value. People lose sight of the value of, of just one-on-one acknowledgement when they're used to being acknowledged by large groups. Or that individual acknowledgement the value is based on someone's status, you know, that kind of thing, where if a certain person acknowledges you, that's very important because of their status. Or, I mean, the best example is when you have a crush. You know, if you like a girl and she says something to you in school, a girl you have a crush on says something to you, oh my goodness, you know, she acknowledged you. That goes a long way, whereas somebody else... Some, maybe an acquaintance of yours who you don't really like, but you kind of talk to them sometimes. If they come up to you, it's pretty much meaningless. But when you have a crush, that person becomes pretty much a celebrity to you. And so being acknowledged by them is going to have more value. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just how it works. And you get high off of it. It's what people do when they're on Twitter and somebody famous retweets them. It's a big deal. Not just because it means more acknowledgement. That person's audience is going to see what I said. It's also the fact that that individual person noticed them. And so we do live in this world of seeking acknowledgement. Although some people do seek obscurity. You know, some people have become monks. Some people seek obscurity in other ways. Depression sometimes sends people into obscurity. But some people seek obscurity even when they have a balanced head on their shoulders. You know, it's not necessarily somebody crawling into a hole. There are people who feel pretty good, but they still desire obscurity. And so the idea of being doomed to obscurity, I don't know about that. I don't think that you're doomed if you find yourself in obscurity. I think you are actually blessed in some way. To me, it's more like being pardoned by the highest judge if you find yourself in obscurity. And if you do want to get into this idea of reincarnation and attaining ultimate liberation at some point, 
your soul no longer having work to do on this earth and going someplace else. If you believe in that, I don't know that I do. I think about it on some sort of intuitive level. I feel like that's not total nonsense. But if you do want to think of things that way, I do start to think of celebrity status and not just celebrity status, but being memorialized in some way as being stuck on earth. I don't see that as the path to liberation. I see it as another weight on your shoulders that could send you right back down to earth, another chain. And maybe I'm totally off on that. But it's strange the way people think of the deceased. You know, it's when people are like, rest in power. That's a phrase that's become more popular in recent years. Rest in power. Very strange. Very strange way to think about death. I hope you rest in power. And it's pretty much meaningless. You, don't, you shouldn't read too into that. People say that because it sounds good. Because rest in peace has been so overused. The idea of rest in peace doesn't even communicate its meaning. A soul being at rest. And we're so attracted to power, too, that we start to think of the dead in those terms. Like, oh, I I hope that in the afterlife you're powerful. I hope you're powerful. I I hope your soul is powerful wherever it is. Just a strange way to think, in, in my opinion. I don't think the deceased need any more power than they already have, because I think being deceased itself is a pretty powerful statement. I think you're in a pretty powerful form when you've reached the point of death. So the idea of telling somebody rest in power is strange. But the other side of that is the way people talk about the deceased too, like, oh, turning in his grave as if the deceased are just totally consumed with the things that they cared about while they were on earth. Oh, I was misrepresented. That thing that I was when I was alive was misrepresented. Kurt Cobain is turning in his grave. Oh, man. Chris Novoselic is making Kurt Cobain turn in his grave. You know, I don't know that it works that way. I don't, I don't know that the deceased are sitting there just worrying about what we're doing and being like, God, I want to say something. You know, we act like the deceased are watching us through a TV screen, screaming at the TV like, I wish I could do something. Wish me more power. I need more people saying rest in power about me so that I can actually do something because I'm turning in my grave here. You know, people, is that people's vision of the deceased? It's a strange way to think, in my opinion. Although thinking in any way, in any context is strange. I think that's a particularly strange one that I don't necessarily agree with. But to die in obscurity, there's something attractive about that. The idea of not being memorialized, not having people devoted, not people, not having people continue to think about you. Because, I mean, it's, it's one thing to imagine having the status of a person 
of a living person and having the status a status that would mean people have opinions of you people I'm, I'm losing my words but it'd be strange to be a living human who has such a high status that people you don't even know are thinking about you and and forming opinions on you and very detailed opinions very nuanced opinions but also stupid just gut level reflexive opinions too all kinds of opinions that's one thing but the idea of being dead and people still doing that and people continually trying to reinterpret what you said or what you did while you were alive you wrote this scripture and on one hand it's a beautiful idea of leaving something behind that continues to inform the living leaving something behind that the living continue to learn from in different ways. You know, I don't think it's wrong to do that. I don't think it's wrong to take what people did while they were alive and even after they're dead, continue to appreciate. I mean, it's what I do. It's what we all do. As living people, it's what we do. But I think there's also something very beautiful about obscurity and it does feel in some way that the highest power is pardoning you that you aren't under scrutiny and to not be remembered is a terrifying thought to many people they fear it so much of what they do while they're living is try to leave things behind that will allow them to be remembered You know, you're lucky if your great-grandchildren know your name. And even if they do, even if they look you up in a genealogical database because nobody else told them about you, it's still, you know, the vivid, real life that you lived isn't going to be remembered. At best, you're going to be a photograph and a name. And maybe we live in a world now where more of you will be remembered because we do use this technology to express ourselves. But, uh, you know, most of us aren't going to be remembered past a certain point. Even people who reach a certain celebrity status, even people who become infamous. But it's pretty incredible that so many people dedicate their lives to that goal, to the idea of being remembered in some way, in some form, But I don't know that that's very desirable. For me, it's not very desirable at all. Even though it is a dilemma for me where I want acknowledgement too. I don't know that there's anything good about dying and people reading about you on Wikipedia for 300 years. In some way, that feels like it's just one more chain holding you down. And this is probably all silly. You know, if we're talking about souls and all of that, that probably doesn't chain your soul to earth. Probably doesn't make any difference. And I'm sure that people who achieve a certain status in life are just as likely to achieve ultimate liberation as somebody who dies in the middle of nowhere in a cabin by themselves, who lived a humble life, a pious life. I'm sure they both have equal opportunity when it comes to ultimate liberation, if it exists. 
You know, I lean toward believing that it does in some way. Maybe we are not capable of fully understanding it. But I believe, like, something to that effect is possible. I don't know where I'm going with this idea. I think all of this just comes from the idea of doomed to obscurity. Doomed to obscurity. And I think it plays into people's fears about climate change as well. And this is a totally apolitical take on that. But people's fear of climate change, beyond the potential pain that people could experience through fire and living on a hot, miserable desert planet where life is fading away, beyond the, the, mis- the potential misery of that, I believe what people fear is that Earth turning into an empty desert planet, the Earth turning into Mars, makes people feel like nothing matters. And that not only will we as individuals not be remembered, but our entire species, all species, all life on Earth will not be remembered if climate change destroys our planet. And if that's true, you know, if that's, you know, if, if we are heading towards some sort of apocalypse, whether we can control it or not, I believe it's a little bit of both. I believe we have a certain amount of control. I believe we've caused a certain amount of damage. But I also believe there's an inevitability to some of these things, too. There's an inevitability to apocalypse in the same way that there's an inevitability to our own individual deaths. And we have such a hard time accepting our own individual death that, of course, we're going to have a hard time accepting the death of our planet. And in the same way that I'm a firm believer in living a healthy lifestyle, while I try not to fear death... I still live a healthy lifestyle. I want to take care of myself while I'm here. And I feel the same way about the planet. I want to take care of the planet. I want us as a species to do our best to take care of the planet while we're here. But I also don't want to live in fear of some sort of inevitable planetary demise either. And I don't feel that some sort of apocalyptic scenario, because I mean, it is as above, so below. You know, if we as individuals die, you know, who is to say that the much larger entities that we try to wrap our brains around, planets, solar system, who is to say that those don't die? And they say they do. They, (laughs) the scientists say they do. And I believe them on that. I don't believe in any science except when they say that solar systems die. But, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's it's definitely an as above, so below sort of of situation where if we on the smallest possible scale die, of course, these entities, which we can't even really comprehend because we don't think of a solar system as being alive, even though it contains at least one planet with life on it. Doesn't that make it alive? 
the fact that Earth is a part of is is the Milky Way? I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know what the solar system is called. I don't even know. I don't know how these systems are organized. Um, but that seems like life. It seems like a, a form of life that we can't completely pro, uh, process. And uh, you know, but I do believe in taking care of what we can take care of, preserving what you can, maintaining the quality of something as much as you can, but not being, not doing that in an effort to escape an inevitable outcome. And you should be willing to accept that outcome. Because if people think wholeheartedly that everything we could possibly do to combat climate change is going to solve all of our problems, they're going to be just as upset if not more upset, you know, when the world ends in 500 years as they would if it ends in 20. Because they haven't learned to accept that possible outcome. So the idea is to still, you know, put a certain amount of energy and I don't even know that you have to put any energy to it you know I, I think that you can just live a certain way you know I'm a person where you know I feel I have a lot of work to do to get where I want to go in life an overwhelming amount of work but I try not to think about how overwhelming it is and I am content with who I am and who I have been and if I were to die tonight you know I wouldn't be upset I wouldn't have regret I wouldn't feel that there was unfinished business, even though there is still business that I could finish and want to finish. But I feel the same way about the planet itself, where if the planet were to end tomorrow, my, I wouldn't be, my soul wouldn't be sitting there watching it play out on TV and be like, I could have done so much to save it. Oh, I'm just, I'm roll. my soul is just going to be in turmoil because I, I helped destroy the earth. I drove a car and I ate meat. I'm not going to feel that way. I don't have guilt. Even though no doubt by simply being alive, by being a human being, I may have contributed to the state of the world. No doubt I did. I'm here. I've contributed to it. I've taken it away. Hopefully, I've maintained some kind of balance. But I don't feel that I've done anything that I would regret. And living in the time that I do, I almost said did, but this is me being alive right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm not talking as a dead person here. Uh, but me being alive in the time that I, I'm in, in the civilization that I'm in, I don't feel that there's that much that I could do differently. And to do that much differently, to me, would be a radical response based in fear of inevitable outcomes and also a fear of obscurity. I believe that I would be operating out of a fear of obscurity that I will be forgotten, that this planet will be forgotten. By who? Who's going to forget this planet? This planet's important to us. 
It's important to the things that are alive on this planet. If there's a creator, it was important enough to create this, to create an environment where this could exist, whether it was deliberate or not. But, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't remember where I was even going with this. How obscurity, uh, you know, just the idea, though, of, of being doomed to obscurity, like like obscurity is some sort of fate worse than death, really. To not be remembered is worse than death itself. And I don't think that's the right outlook. I don't think that's a healthy outlook. I think there's a relief to obscurity. I think there's a relief to knowing that you are not being scrutinized beyond your immediate environment, both while you're living and while you're dead. And we should look for opportunities for relief, the same sort of relief, the same sort of relief I felt when I puked my guts out after that disturbing AIDS video. And I really recommend you watch that. All this talk about apocalypse. Watch this AIDS video. Look it up. Look up baseball AIDS documentary or baseball AIDS educational video. Use one of these keywords. If you don't find it right away, make sure baseball and AIDS and video are all in there. And you'll eventually find it. And you may find peace with that too. This video might help you find peace. It might not establish world peace. It might not make the world itself peaceful. But if you individually can find peace, that's going to contribute to a larger peace around you. It's going to be a piece of the peace. Oh, that, that peace that you felt. That peace that you feel after you puke your guts out after the AIDS video. That's a piece of the peace. That's a P-I-E-C-E of the P-E-A-C-E. A piece of the peace. But if you watch this AIDS video, maybe you'll puke your guts out and feel instant relief. Maybe your arms will feel weird. Hopefully you don't faint and hit your head, like some people. But you might puke your guts out and feel instant relief. But allow yourself relief. Many people don't. Many people would rather choose fear. And they stare at things and they see fear. They feel fear. Meanwhile, they're just staring in the mirror all along. You know, when they, when they, they think that they're, they're seeing fear. I mean, the, the way things are right now, people seem to be hallucinating. People seem to be in this hallucinatory state they're having a bad trip, and no matter what you say or do, you cannot get them out of it. And some people can, and that's amazing. It's amazing that there are people who can take somebody and walk them out of a bad trip. Those people are truly special. And if you've ever met somebody like that or heard somebody like that speak, 
wow, you know, that is really something special because I feel that that's happened to me. I feel that I was walked out of some sort of hallucinatory bad trip at some point. And while my hallucinatory bad trip was self-created, I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. And it was it was dark, but it wasn't necessarily... I don't think it was it was fearful. I don't think it was fearful in the same way that some bad trips are fearful. But it was still a bad trip, and I feel in some way that I was walked out of that. I was walked into a good trip. And it's funny that I'm using this hallucination example, this psychedelic example, because I like to avoid psychedelia. It's not it's not one of my things, even though I've certainly had my experiences. I kind of tire of those discussions as a substitute as a substitute for sober spirituality which can be just as hallucinatory and in many ways much more strange and I'm not against the idea of people accessing spiritual experiences and having epiphanies through the use of drugs I would much rather people do that than not but I guess I'll say it's not my focus. But that said, I still think bad trips are a good example. And uh, it does feel like people are having a very bad trip right now. And no matter what they come into contact with, it produces a scary, distorted hallucination that they can't seem to get away from. And if you attempt to... If you enter their cone of vision and try to help them in any way you yourself become another distorted hallucination who's trying to hurt them but uh, you know that's why you have to tread carefully and people have to let you in if you are going to help people in the same way that you have to let people in you have to choose to allow that possibility they have to choose to allow that possibility But what people need to do is just puke their guts out. They need to watch this AIDS video. They need to find this AIDS video that I saw in fifth grade that never left me. I wouldn't say it was traumatic. I would just say it was profound. It's a profound trauma. The fifth grade baseball AIDS video. A prof- it's called, that'd be great if the name of the video was a profound trauma. AIDS, a profound trauma. That's my goal. Spread this video around. Make sure everybody sees it. If this video hasn't been playing in schools, well, that's the problem. You think Zoomers are a problem? You think the Zoomers are a problem? It's because they didn't watch the baseball AIDS video. Duh. Oh, the the Zoomers are having a bad trip because they they haven't seen the... the, I mean, this video is a fucking hallucination. (laughs) This baseball AIDS video is one of the most hallucinatory things I could imagine. And when I looked at the comments on the video, a bunch of the responses were people saying, I thought I dreamed this. I saw this as a kid and I thought I dreamed it. Somebody said, I thought I hallucinated it. So the people in the comments had similar reactions to me. I didn't see anybody talk about puking because of it, but the comments were very much like, what was that thing I saw? 
but I'm all about bringing it back. I'm all about teaching people to retype things in their own words, not let autocorrect speak for them. Puke your guts out because of the baseball AIDS video. Except one possible outcome is planetary death, the death of everything, which might be what happens when you die. You don't know that? You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. You know that's what it comes down to. And uh, it's funny, here I am, like this has ended up being full of psychedelic references, but it's like Terrence McKenna said, the hubris of anxiety. When he said that, it was, it just stood out to me so much. He referred to anxiety as a form of hubris, the audacity of anxiety, to think that you know what's going to happen, and it's going to be bad, and to live your life responding to that. Responding to a feeling that things are bad, they're going to be bad. And my anxiety is the proof. My anxiety about something that hasn't yet come to be is proof that it will be. That's bad magic. That's a bad spell. And that might be a a way of thinking of it, too. A bad trip, a bad spell. People are incredibly anxious. Incredibly anxious. But that's electricity that you can use. If you find yourself anxious, just remember, that's electricity. When you remove the emotional side of it, when you remove the emotional investment that you've put into anxiety, what you have is pure buzzing electricity shooting through your body. And you can use that. That is fuel. It's free. It's, it's, it's a free service, man. You're getting electricity for free. You, know, you pay the city for the electricity of your house. Anxiety is free electricity. When you think about the god of thunder, the god of lightning, you think about all these, all these civilizations. They had, uh, they had their own gods of thunder and lightning. You got Thor. You got Marduk. You got storm gods, lightning gods. Those gods were anxious. These demigods and gods of lightning and electricity and storms, these were anxious gods. But they knew how to channel, they knew how to use their anxiety. And that's why those were always the most powerful gods. That's why Thor is so strong, because he's filled with anxiety, but he's not emotionally invested in his anxiety. Therefore, he just goes out and he you know, destroys in a good way. He destroys in a good way. Are you destroying in a good way? That'd be a good question. As I said earlier, you know, I just hope to strike a balance. You know, while I like to be constructive, I know that I'm also destructive. I know that in order to live, I have to consume things. I know that I have to use things. So hopefully I can find some kind of balance in that. And hopefully if I have to destroy, I can destroy in a good way. Because destruction often precedes construction. 
And if you're filled with the electricity of anxiety, well, hey, you got something to work with. It's like a, that's like an energy drink. It's like getting like a bang energy drink for free. You don't even have to make coffee. And if you do, then you're really going. If you already have some sort of anxiety and you learn how to use that to your benefit, that is playing with the house's money. And then if you drink coffee on top of that, if you drink a bang energy drink or two on top of that, unstoppable. You will be unstoppable. And how can you possibly have a bad trip if you're unstoppable? This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free